Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. This evening, I'm sat with Nelson Crow, Principal of Endeavour Real Estate Group. I'm very excited to get into this recording. Nelson is personally responsible for two billion US dollars of multifamily development. But to our shrewdest listeners, they might also pick up on Nelson's accent and know that he is our first US guest on the podcast. Now, I'm incredibly grateful for him for spending the time talking us through about his career and the lessons he's learned. Hopefully, we'll pick up on see if there's any particular lessons then that is unique to the US or might be universal across uh, as well for other listeners. But specifically to our US audience, I'm glad it gives them a bit of a familiar voice as well. Now, Nelson, before we get into the interview, many of our audience won't be familiar with Endeavour. So would you mind giving us a quick overview of your role and Endeavour's platform? Sure. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me today. I lead Endeavor's multifamily platform, which is, is code for apartments for lease uh, on, a, on an annual basis to, in, in layman's terms. And Endeavor, as a, as a macro company, we're roughly a 20-year-old private company and one of the largest full-service uh, mixed-use developers in Texas. And that, that includes retail, office, industrial, self-storage, multifamily, uh, and some land development. And so we are uh, privately owned and operated. We have in-house management, in-house leasing, brokerage, development, and acquisitions. Um, and we are we are very active in in identifying real estate assets that can be developed to their highest and best use. And because we have the internal abilities to develop uh, different asset classes, uh, we're able to to potentially be more aggressive or uh, have different different uses of land if and when a market shifts. And so we're, uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to, to be able to work in the multifamily space, especially at a time like right now when, when maybe other asset classes are not, uh, do not have the opportunities that multifamily does and the growth trajectory of this you know, millennial platform and even uh, empty nester or baby boomer generation that, that does uh, find the benefit of rental versus home ownership right now. Um, and how big is your footprint when it comes to multifamily? We have um, roughly 20 projects we're working on right now, uh, totaling about a billion and a half uh, in development cost. We are uh, in the United States alone. We're in multiple projects in Austin, Dallas, uh, San Diego, Salt Lake City, Utah, Denver, Colorado, Nashville, Tennessee, and Houston, Texas. So that's kind of our footprint. And the uh, rhyme or reason for those locations is, is really most of them have – either capital cities or a large university uh, for great talent upon graduation, uh, good tax environment, and they're growing markets. They're growing uh, growing employment, growing population. And so the, the key metrics we look at from a multifamily perspective of rent growth and appreciation of asset value are really driven by population growth and employment growth. And so those are kind of our key markets. Right then. Well, let me let me wind the clock back a little bit. Let's go back to when it all started, and I'm, I'm curious to see whether where that first sort of cha- let's say sort of chapter or first interest in real estate began. Sure. Well, I am uh, born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee, which you probably don't even know where that is if you're in Europe, but it's a uh, 
a central southeastern state in the U.S., hence my non-European uh, accent. We, uh, I, was, I was born into a family. My dad is a real estate developer and investor uh, in Tennessee, and my mom is an interior designer. And so young, growing up at a young age, I was exposed to, uh, to, to both facets of real estate, the acquisition, the development side, and the design side. I didn't really know what it meant at the time. I wasn't uh, understanding it or even attempting to. I was probably bored with it. Uh, my, my dad would you know, make, make us go on drives uh, and, and walk and look at properties and my, be hit my sister in the back of the car during that time. But I think that just gained me an awareness of an opportunity of, hey, here's, here's what my dad does. And you know, years and years and years of that uh, practice, I guess, in my head upon going to, to college or university, as you may call it, you know, I had to kind of pick a path and because of uh, it's what I knew and I was I, I was good on the math side and I like the number side. I personally am not an accountant type because uh, I like the more entrepreneurial aspect. And so it was just a natural fit for me to be able to use my math skills and, the, and my understanding, uh, what I thought understanding of real estate acquisition development could be like with my passion on the interior design part. And, and that really stemmed from just creating a sense of place and a sense of home. Um, didn't know if that would be multifamily or industrial at the time, but able to have some good internships in college, uh, part-time jobs that allowed me to, to kind of test my skills or lack thereof. And then kind of my first chapter into full-time re- real estate as a profession was given the opportunity to, to work for a company called Crow Holdings uh, right after school. And, and they're a very large, multi-billion dollar, uh, high net worth uh, investor managing the Trammell Crow family money. Trammell Crow is one of the, the largest developers uh, in history in, in the United States. And, and they managed assets and developed assets from, from Europe to, to Mexico. And so uh, I was a general analyst and that allowed me to really start on the ground realized very quickly that what I learned in college was a, a decent platform of how to think, but in terms of the technical skills, you know, that, that ran out about week one or week two on the job. So there's a lot of, a lot of learning. It's, it's sink or swim. And we're looking at a lot of deals, you know, daily and weekly. And my role was analyzing those deals to provide financial modeling for the people higher up than me of, hey, do we, is it better to invest in this industrial portfolio uh, in Atlanta or this multifamily asset in Denver? And so that was kind of my role at that time. Now, I mentioned to you, I've done a bit of research on this, and I spoke to a couple of people who've known you of old. Now, you'll have to tell me whether, whether someone's pulling my leg here, but they've, they said you, had a, you picked up a nickname at Crow as the Squirrel because you were well, so hyperactive. Now, is that true? Uh, that's true. That's true. A very strong squirrel. <laughs> Yeah, I don't sit. I don't sit still. My wife uh, doesn't want to be around me on the phone because I pace. But you know, Nick right now has asked me to wear a headset and be plugged into Wi-Fi and the internet so we don't lose connections. So I'm actually immobile right now and having to really focus on your questions. So there's no the squirrel is eating nuts right now and not frolicking around on the trees. Um, but they did go on then to say some really really kind stuff. Now let's let me share this. So. Nelson was immediately the go-to guy who, to run point for any of the complicated opportunities that we were evaluating as a firm. He always exhibited a killer combination, positive attitude, strong technical skills, and discernment in decision-making to, to do well in life. Now, apart from that being extremely kind after, after the squirrel comment, where did you get that confidence from in, in such an early days? 
Is that is, is that is that an, a ten, American tendency, or is or is that unique to you? I think that's the part they're pulling your leg on that, that <laughs> quote about right there. Um, no, I I uh, that's very kind kind words. I think it's more of a determination. I went to a pretty stern, you know, aggressive school growing up, kind of college prep school. And my dad, again, work ethic was drilled into me very young age, and uh, I didn't really have an option. It's either when you do something. You, you better figure it out, do your best. There's nobody to fix it for you or have your back. And uh, you're going to make mistakes. So ask questions, try to learn the answer. If you don't know the answer, look it up. If you can't find the answer, ask somebody, but don't sit there and twiddle your thumbs and wait till the clock to run out and say you don't have an answer. And so, yeah, I'm not good at everything and make a lot of mistakes, but I think that's just instilled in me as to uh, there is failure, but there should only be failure once you've kind of exhausted your own personal uh, resources or those around you. And then learn, and then when you do fail, learn from that. And so I think it's just a determination to, to keep growing and learning. And, uh, I definitely was, I'd say for the first six months at Crow, uh, I thought I'd get fired any day. I, I would remember calling my dad saying, this is not clicking to me. It was a lot of financial modeling. And back then this was 2005 and six, you know, we didn't have the college technicals prep that you do now. We didn't have the Excel classes or the, the Argus classes to run the models. Uh, I thought it was just a computer class, so I probably skipped half of them. And then <laughs> I, I get to, to, to Crow and all the billion dollars of, you know, evaluation software is, is run on these, these same uh, Excel, you know, models. And I really was like, oh, my gosh, I, I shouldn't have skipped that class. This is actually important stuff. And so it, it didn't click in my head, though, of how to uh, formulate the models for about six months. I kind of understood the deal side but I didn't, I wasn't the best on the technical side. So I really had to learn that, ask a ton of questions. There's a lot of great talent and, and, and peers that I worked with that, uh, that answer those questions for me and help me out a lot. And so it's just, again, I think the punchline is when you don't know something, there's somebody there smarter than you and remove your ego and go ask the question and figure out, you know, how they knew it and how you can know it next time and help somebody else. We've talked about talked about a little bit then what what you were learning, and I'm always a big fan then to to try and sort of to stress my own theory about the your career sort of built during chapters when you're accelerating, and then that moves into a resting period. So during that after that sort of six months, when it's that real sort of baptism of fire, can you put your finger on where you where things began to change, where you began then to feel a bit more confident, a bit more comfortable, and and if so, you know, did that mean mean you started to consider whether, whether this was going to be a long-term position for you. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, kind of after you learn the framework and get comfortable on the systems and the processes and how to how the company kind of wants you to think and analyze, that, that was that roughly six-month period. Once I kind of had it down and, and it clicked, it's all about, as an analyst, getting the reps, we call it, getting the repetitions. And no deal is the same. And so when those deals come in, how to look at them. And I think the big opportunity at that age for me and where I probably made some mistakes too is you've got to get the skills down as an analyst. You got to do your job. You got to do your, why they hired you. You got to make sure you're an expert in that. And, uh, again, you'll still always make mistakes, but making sure you can really do your job. And then you need to have, be able to also step back and say, why am I doing these changes? Why am I looking at it this way? Is it because Billy or Sammy told me to, but why did they want me to run it that way? If did they, if they say the rent should be, you know, $1 versus $2, why is that? And so that's where I think the difference is in, in, in one's desire to learn more and one's desire to understand the deal 
versus the job functions and duties, if that makes sense. And so, you know, it, it kind of kicked off, I guess, after six months or so when I was able to have a lot of deal uh, repetition. We were investing in a lot of deals. It was a hot time in the market. This was 06, 07, kind of at this point. And so the, the market in the U.S. was really hot. Uh, we were working on all asset classes. I felt like we were having a, a closing, you know, every week. Um, and so and we had the capital to do so. Um, and you start looking, you know, some of my peers start looking, get a little more, a little aggressive and uh, cocky and start looking at your own deals, which the company doesn't really need you to do that. You need to do their deals. But that was, uh, th- that's when you kind of start realizing, hey, there's there's some other things that I'd like to, to look at too, right or wrong. So just, just to entertain yourself really with, hey, what would this, would this make sense? Would this deal across the road over here? You know, I wonder if we can tie this up with a partner and, and do something over here. So you're with Crow now for two years. It's coming up to sort of, it's early 2008, right? That's right. You make a move, don't you? You make a career move to uh, to Four Star. Yeah, I made the move in, in uh, let's see, July of 08. And so I guess the, the wheels were turning, I don't know, maybe March, April or so. And the wheels turning were, were really impatient on my part. I, I looked up, Crow was a fantastic uh, place to work. We, we're still partners with them now. Couldn't be a better place, smarter people. But I just said, you know what? I, uh, you know, at that time, probably immature and and want to do more i don't want to be an analyst anymore doing the same repetitions there was a lot of great talent above me and i kind of had to make a a risky decision do i sit and wait for an opportunity that opens up or one of uh one of the the head execs over there sat me down for lunch one day and said you know what there's a new opportunity a friend of mine just took a company public and uh they've got nobody you know your age or nobody kind of looks at numbers, I guess, uh, in a way they need them to. And so would you be willing to, uh, to interview with them and, and talk to them? And I said, you know, grass is green on the other side type of mentality at that age, you know, 24, 25 years old. I said, sure, let me take a look. And, uh, at that time it was, I didn't really calculate the risk at that time because I, I wasn't married. I, you know, didn't have many much overhead. And so I was willing to take a move. And, and for me, it was, I, I processed it in a way of at Crow, it, 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 I knew it was going to take time. It was going to be a waiting game. I was going to be doing the same thing for a while, still learning, but the learning plat had plateaued. You know, it was the same kind of reps every time on these deals. Or a new company, public company, more focused on the land at the time, which again, this was early to mid 2008. So the recession was not in full swing or even really aware in our minds at the time. And so it was the hottest asset class at the time. And I wanted to be a part of the hottest growing asset class and focus on that. So I made the move to four star four star was a, again, a recently a public company focused on land development in, uh, in July of 08. So we could, we obviously, we, we all know what happens later on in 08. How did that affect those early days at four star? That was, uh, yeah, I, was, <clears throat> I remember, you know, the first three months, you're excited. You're kind of on cloud nine. You have a new job, and you're, you're, uh, we're looking at single-family lot development and, you know, how much land can we buy and acquire and develop and, you know, putting golf courses on them and schools and, and retail. And, and uh, we were developing the land and selling it to to the home builders or to the vertical the builders. And it was, you know, I think, what, September, early September 2008 when the market crashes overnight and, and, and banks go go under and uh all that pursuit stopped we actually did not close a deal in those first three months and close a deal after that 
uh, to my knowledge, uh, in any sort of time. And so it quickly went from aggressiveness, uh, pursuit mode to, are we all getting laid off? Are we all getting fired? Is, is the economy going to stock market going to zero? And so I remember days where, you know, HR would be walking through the halls and, and, uh, you just, you, you stare at your computer and don't turn around and hope they don't tap you on the shoulder. And, uh, I remember my, I had lunch with our uh, executive president, and I was so nervous I would get laid off because I was, you know, last in the door and, and wasn't adding much value because I was new to the company. And uh, I, he says, was small talking to me one afternoon, and I said, hey, can you cut me straight? Am I going to get let go? And he said, no, of course not. You're the youngest one here, and you're the cheapest one here. Why would we let you go? <laughs> and so is that a good thing or a bad thing? I didn't know. Well, it turned out to be a good thing, but I was thankful for the opportunity to, to continue working uh, for them and, and just you know, do what I could to help out. So what did you do in those, in those early days and what are you, what were you particularly learning? Yeah, well, it, uh, going back to kind of plateau because we weren't, uh, we were a public company. And so we, we really had to do what the market told us to do, which at that time we had a lot of cash. We wanted to preserve cash. We were not being aggressive on any new pursuits. And that's where really got my juices flowing. You know, I wanted to do more deals and we weren't doing deals. Um, and we probably shouldn't, and so we were really, my, my job there at Forstar was just managing the home builder contracts. So if a home builder said they were going to buy, you know, 10 lots from you in January and they called you and said, we can only buy zero or two, then we just reworked that contract. So it was, it was not uh, the most exciting job. And so uh, a friend of mine came up to me and said he was at another home builder. They were having some troubles and he presented me an opportunity to buy their vertical custom homes and lease them back to the home builder. And we would then own the home. They would pay us rent every month in these nice communities in North Dallas. And we would be basically the landlord. We'd own the home, be able to sell that at a later date, get the cash flow from the home builder. And so that to me was very exciting. It was an opportunity that uh, we raised a fund. Uh, this was still while I was at Four Star, but we raised a fund uh, from some private high net worths and, and ended up buying a portfolio of custom single family homes in North Texas and kind of ran that, what I'll call a side business. Uh, and that kind of, uh, allowed me to, to, to learn and grow and, and do some exciting things with a partner of mine while, while still doing my day job at four star. It was just slower at that time. So was this out of interest? Was this then, was this a personal endeavor it or is. was this? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Personal. Okay. So, at the start of the recording, I asked you sort of you know, what you're up to now, and obviously that's entirely now multifamily. Up until this point, you've been focusing on single um, single family homes. So, at what points in this time, then during sort of four started things start to switch? Yeah, well, it was really market driven. It was uh, late 2009, so I'd been there roughly a year and a half and focused on uh, what four star did and did best was a single family development. But again, the market. Uh, did not give us the opportunity to, to do much of that. We were kind of sold to, to sit in wait mode and that uh, I'm not good sitting and waiting, hence the, the squirrel joke. And so we, in my, my at, at Crow Holdings, looking back, you know, we were in a lot of asset classes. Multifamily was hot. Most people in, in the U.S. this time, my age, you know, lived in apartments. We know apartments from a, a use standpoint. Not all of us have been in, in an industrial or a, a high-rise office building, but most people have been in an apartment building. So there is sort of a comfort level there. Uh, Four-star in late 2009, uh, hired an executive from, from Washington, D.C. to start uh, a multifamily group. I was not aware of this. 
I kind of heard through the grapevine that they were interviewing or had just hired this uh, this executive. And a light went on in my head and said, you know what? I could sit here and, and keep doing what I'm doing on the single family side. It's not that interesting to me. Or I'm going to go meet this guy and uh, and see what he's all about. So I I drove down to Austin, asked to have lunch with him. And he uh, thankfully obliged and, and we had lunch. And I was very impressed with him. And uh, I blindly just said, hey, you're exciting. It sounds like we're gonna you're going to build something great here in Austin. And I live in Dallas. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think at that point, recently engaged. So I can't move to Austin, but I want to be your right-hand man. And uh, he thankfully allowed me to do that. And we, uh, right or wrong, started kind of building a framework of what a multifamily company could look like within Four Star, just as a different segment of the business. And so it was a way for Four Star to diversify uh, their holdings and their investments. And uh, I was really thankful for the opportunity because it that kind of restarted my juices. Even the economy was still very rough. This was, again, late 2009, early 2010. We were in the middle of the recession. But uh, it, for me, was an exciting new platform, completely unknown to me, unknown to, to this other gentleman, really, of what it was going to look like. But we knew there was some upside here, some excitement, and we could start something from scratch. Okay, well, I get I get the excitement point. How risky was it for you, though? 2009, you, you've got sort of colleagues being made redundant. It seems like you're going to a safe place at the moment, but although not the yes. most exciting. How risky was that move then drive, driving down to a new town and speaking to, to a new guy saying, saying oh, you know, I, want to, I want to come with you? Yeah, very risky uh, for me personally, just because we, uh, I, I was engaged at the time. Uh, it, it was middle of the recession. And again, looking back, you still didn't know how bad it was or when the bottom was, but it was, you know, people were getting laid off left and right. Uh, it was a new, new transition for me, new company, really within a company. And uh, I, I knew part of the, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, I was forced to move, see, July of 2010. And so while I, 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 I traveled from Dallas and Austin for about six months there, the, the move was imminent. And so that was really the risky move of my wife making, you know, fiance at the time, but future wife, making sure she was comfortable with the move, sight unseen. She was going to leave her job, starting a new family in a new city. And they kind of always say, you know, make sure you don't do a, a life life change, a move, a new job, or a new city all in one, you know, one year. We did all of them in one year. And so that was the risky part for me. But I, I just, I kind of, my, my calculation at the time was, you know what, it's a it's a great place to live in Austin. I hadn't been there before, actually, other than just commuting you know, to the airport. But it's a great market, great place to live. I'm still within the same company from a p- overall you know umbrella standpoint, so there is still some comfort there. I'm going to partner with a guy that I respected, and, and from my research, he was really respected in the in the industry, knew what he was doing, and it's a business unit in multifamily that I've done before, albeit on a much you know more junior scale and it's a it's a hot growing business and so we don't know if we'll be successful but we know the the legs on the stool i call it are kind of there to at least give us the ability to succeed and so all we got to do is not step our toe on the stool legs and make sure we can succeed but but the the market and the platform i felt like it was uh it gave us the the right tools we needed to to make it happen okay so there's probably some similarities here. You know, we've got a global pandemic, haven't we? We've got people, in, particularly in, um, in the UK and Europe, people being made redundant within within real estate. 
if someone is in that same shoes right now, they see an opportunity, they see an area of the business that they think is more exciting, more alluring, probably more beneficial to them in terms of their career. How do they make that decision? How do they calculate that risk? Yeah. Well, I think it, I talk to a lot of guys uh, and girls often, this is that same question. And go being back to, uh, and, and fast forwarding, you know, to a lot of things I learned while at Four Star toward the end of my career there, it's, it's all about, in my opinion, for, for an individual to be able to grow and learn and contribute, you've got to be working on deals. Well, how do you work on deals? You've got to be at a company or have the platform to work on those deals, and that means you need capital. And so I would say, does that new opportunity you're looking at, do they have the capital to invest and, or, or develop whatever they're going to do to do deals? And if they have capital, uh, that's the first question I always ask. Do they have the money to make the deal happen? And if they do, it's how do, what type of deals are they looking at? Are they, are they approving deals? Are they actually doing the deals? Um, and what would your role then be in those deals? Do, are you going to then be put uh, in that company in a role that allows you personally to grow, contribute, and learn in that company? And if those two things are there, I think the, you've negated a lot of the risk. You know you're going to have opportunities that the company can transact, and you know you personally are going to be the one in that role, learning and growing, contributing. And after that, again, that going back to the legs on the stool at four star comparison, platforms created. You just got to go make it happen personally. But you've given the tools to succeed. All right, then, Nelson. So for the benefit then the audience, you know, I've I've asked you about that. You know, how risky a move that was. Did it pay off? Did it give you the learning and the platform then to to continue that that accelerating career? I think it did. I think uh, you know, pay off financially. No, uh, but but learning curve, yes. It was, it, it created excitement for us. Uh, I was, I was in a position then to learn a lot. You know, my multifamily experience at uh, at Crow Holdings was more on the analytical side, and uh, we started off in it with acquisitions. So it was just another gentleman and I. We started growing a team, but at the time, this was uh, you know early 2010, really throughout 2010, the market uh, development was not in favor. It was. Uh, People didn't know where construction costs were going to be, where values were going to be. So the, the least risky way of developing is acquiring. And so we were buying assets. That very quickly shifted in about a 12-month span where the market literally, it felt overnight, uh, switched from pro, you know, in favor of acquisitions to in favor of development. There was a great uh, talent pool, you know, people that had gotten laid off or, or lost their jobs. And we were able to scoop up some of them, create a development platform, and go buy sites. People were still timid. Uh, to buy sites where they worked for a large company and going back to didn't know uh, where the values were or couldn't place cash. And so there was a window there where you could really buy any site uh, you wanted and, and hope you bought on the right end. Looking back, it was clearly you could have bought any site and done a great job. But we were we were able to start buying some sites. My role personally quickly switched from acquisitions to development. So it kind of, that was another risk move for me, uh, but I was forced to do it. I mean, I, I sat down with the, my guy and he said, look, we're not going to be doing many more acquisitions anymore. The return profiles are a lot more favorable on the development side. You need to learn development. And I was like, why? Well, I don't I don't know development. And he said, well, you got to figure it out. And so, again, it was a fake it till you make it and learn on the curve. And uh, it was scary at the time because the, the analytical side of my brain was really well suited for the acquisitions. It was really a math game for me. And the development side introduced so many more obstacles and risk. Uh, but 
going back to kind of my early interest in, in real estate was the passion for design. Acquisitions don't allow you to uh, work through that passion because you're acquiring what's already been developed or created. And so I really started to, uh, it was worth the risk to learn and make mistakes because I was able to actually impact design and, and, and deliver some neat, neat product, uh, you know, in late 2010 or 11 or so. So it, it was very exciting. We, we were learning as a team on the go fast, uh, hiring the right people. We ended up constructing in-house and, and building a GC platform in-house um, that didn't exactly work out very well. We learned a lot from that, but we were able to grow. We were doing deals in Nashville, in Denver, uh, Houston, Dallas, Austin, and looking elsewhere at that time. Let's take a quick pause now because I wanted to bring in then some uh, another one of the comments I I, uh, I picked up for one of the guys you were working with this time. Uh, now he described you as extremely driven and not afraid to dive in headfirst to a conflict or tough situation. Has that ever got you in trouble? Oh, a lot of times. Yeah, my my dad's still surprised this day I haven't been beat up. So <laughs> yeah, um, I just I'm I'm a. Uh, I like the confrontation, uh, not in a, you know, problematic way, but I like to challenge myself or challenge others and really understand, uh, an opinion or why someone wants to do something. And so I think that curiosity drives people to understand each other uh, better and, and learn from each, where each other comes from. And it, it's not in an argumentative state, but it's in a, you know, let's drive into this, let's figure it out. Let's, uh, let's look at the positives and look at the negatives and, uh, and then make a decision on, on what we want to do. So to me, the only way, only way to do that is to, to, to dry, dive into it and get all the details we possibly can. Well, that sounds very reasoned because I think that obviously sort of rings true with what that same person went on to say. Uh, because after he said about sort of you, you, you looking to dive headfirst into conflict of decision, he said he does so with not allowing his emotions to dictate his attitude or the solutions to those, those problems. So I think that's quite, that's quite an interesting sort of, duality there isn't it you've got, you've got someone who is so driven and not a, not afraid to get themselves in the middle of, of these sort of tough situations so you're willing to get so immersed but you somehow manage to stay sort of emo- emotionally sort of detached so that you've still got a clear head that can't be easy can it no and it's not perfect there's oftentimes emotions do get in, in the way but you know it's it's business uh and it's i go back to the math comment it's it's real estate. It's math driven. There's a gut aspect of it too, which I've missed out on a lot of deals. A lot of great people I work with now have a incredible uh, driven by gut or maybe driven by that emotion. And uh, yeah, I'm still learning that process of it. But the uh, the, the the business side, the analytical side, is um, there can't be place for emotions because you know that'll I think alter your uh, alter where the opportunity may be. And so I think. Uh, I think if you can look at it from an analytical approach, understand the facts, see the risk reward on doing, you know, plan A or plan B, once that's set, then there's current, we're all human. So we obviously have the emotions, but uh, I think the first initial decision can't be fueled by those emotions, but they're definitely a part of it, you know, once you've got the facts. Well, then let's, let's have a bit of a recap then, because you've been up now at Four Star. You joined as the analyst in the single family homes. Now you've seized the opportunity then to move into multifamilies acquisitions. Once more reinvented yourself then in, in into development. You've launched a general contractor. What haven't you done? What's what was left on the on the table to learn? Sure. Well, for me, I was still um, still 
you know, young guy and, and uh, making a lot of mistakes and kind of in the shadow of some other guys. And it was given a, a long leash. Uh, my prior boss told me, he said, hey, I can cage you up and you'll ask me to do more or I can give you a long leash and you'll make some mistakes and come to me and ask questions. And he knew I'd ask the questions and, and not get make too many mistakes would cost the company. So I was very thankful for his oversight of me. And, and one thing I was passionate about was expanding into new markets that we weren't, uh, weren't previously in and where I can maybe have some advantage. And that was Nashville at the time. Um, and so in late 2012, early 13, Nashville was a very young market. There was not much multifamily development. I have a lot of contacts uh, here. And so I say here because I'm actually sitting in Nashville right now, but we were, uh, I was able to source a, a couple sites there and, and, grow that footprint for four star at the time. And so that was my first time where the deals were really, I was able to have the most influence on those deals and, and thankful to given the, the opportunity to lead those developments and lead that design and, and, uh, to, to build, uh, you know, some, um, some really neat special projects in Nashville, in my hometown and that I was passionate about. And I think that, that showed my company that, we can expand successfully. We can grow our footprint. We can do different types of deals and new deals and, and have successes outside of our home state. And so that, I think, for really gave me confidence that I needed uh, to say, hey, we as a company have started uh, something from scratch. And then personally, I have, uh, have kind of proven to myself that I can do this. And, uh, you know, the building is still standing after a couple of years. So that was, that was good. I needed that confidence, you know, because we kind of reset so many times and, and been through some tough times uh, as a country and economically. And I wanted to, to make sure that I was not just you know, talking the talk, but that I actually could do something that I wanted to do. So it's a big milestone, isn't it? Does that also coincide with the end of an accelerating period? Does this feel like now you're, you're moving into resting once more? Well, it, it did only because the company at the time we had, we had, we gotten out of the recession at this point in time. This is probably late 15 when those deals kind of were fully uh, developed and in lease up mode. And we wanted to, we all, we had uh, about three or four developers uh, at, at four star that were all multifamily focused and we all wanted to grow and expand. And just given the, uh, the timing of other investments we had made as a company, we were kind of told to put the brakes on a little bit. And uh, there were some other outside factors that, uh, that the company needed to halt uh, slow down their investments, even though the market at the time was really humming. And so that's where that confrontation occurred of saying, hey, the market, the market's giving us a great opportunity, but we right now can't take advantage of that. What do we do? Uh, and where's that struggle and that kind of internal uh, drive go? And so for me, I wasn't really saying wanting to go somewhere else or wanting to do something else, but it kind of felt like that early, those early days at, at Crow where I felt like, is there another opportunity where I could go outside of this company, keep doing what I'm doing, keep doing what I'm now confident I can do and, and help another platform that does want to grow and does have the ability to grow exponentially at a faster pace than the company right now. Why? Why is that important? Well, going back to uh, you know what I talked about when that when somebody right now, even this this recession or this pandemic is looking at another opportunity, there's two types of companies. There's there's some that are content holding the the anchor down and just being playing it safe and waiting for clarity or there's companies that see opportunity see risk in the market see that people aren't uh doing deals and they're a contrarian play and they're entrepreneurial and they want to go kind of in attack mode when others aren't and i really like that and and that's where i think you know 
in in a recession or a pandemic similar to where we are today, I think there's there's companies that are need to be content, need to be kind of uh, safe, uh, harboring their assets or their cash, and, and not uh, not willing to to make investments or development opportunities occur, and and that's perfectly fine. Uh, for my personality and type, again, that goes back to kind of sitting around and waiting for that clarity when everyone else can can make a deal happen, then you move forward. And uh, I knew that there was another opportunity, or I hope there was another opportunity at a company that that allowed me to be a contrarian, go out there and buy at the right time when others maybe aren't and, and put deals on the ground and at least tie up sites and uh, be more aggressive. And it's risky, but uh, if you look back, you know, at kind of each recession, going back to even 2008, 2009, uh, you know, 95% of companies were not doing deals. It was not, it was not in sway to do that. It was, it was risky, but, uh, looking back, you could have bought any deal in the, in America in 2009 and made a lot of money doing it. And so only because others weren't. And when that pipeline stops, it allows for opportunity uh, for others to really, to make a good buy. So I asked you about, about the why let's, let's talk about the what. So what, what was this next chapter beginning? Well, um, while the, the passion was there, you know, in late 15 to, to keep doing deals. Again, this was, this was, uh, my intent was not to, to leave four star, but we were kind of strapped, uh, corporately of what we could and couldn't do. And that passion was there to do more. And, uh, fast forwarding, you know, a few months, actually, they told us early January, 2016, we were mid construction on a few deals that, Hey, uh, corporately, we've got to lay off majority of the of our staff. We just had we had invested in some asset classes that were not performing, and we you know, we were a multifaceted investment company at that time. Multifamily is just one of our asset classes. We were doing really well. The market was doing really well, and because of that, uh, they forced us to sell all of our assets to the benefit of the larger company. And so that was shocking personally for me and hard to swallow. We had uh, personally just had our our son, who was two weeks old at that time, my wife was on maternity leave, and uh, and so we went from a week before was great company, new baby, uh, you know, sky's the limit. We're doing new deals. To uh, what do we do now? We're, we're, we my whole team's been laid off. Our assets are going to be sold, and so I had a decision to make. You know, the first day I kind of look at it in three day period. The first day was in shock of this news. Uh, the second day was angry, probably. You know, how could this happen? And we're doing so well. How can this be pulled out from under us? Uh, but the third day is the decision day. I think that's the important day. You know, you need a face when any of this happens. People get, people get unfortunately laid off during this pandemic quite a bit. And I think uh, personally normal to go through those emotions. But on that you know, third day or so, you can continue after that anger to be more angry or be upset and say, hey, I'm just going to quit or uh, I'm going to wait until something's handed to me. Or you can say, you know what, I got to figure this out. I'm going to go get after it and get something done here. And so for me, the opportunity was, you know, I knew our company's going to be selling these assets, selling these deals that I'd worked on. And uh, I knew that other development companies would want to buy these assets. So, and, and thankfully the, the executives of the company said, hey, you are responsible for uh, providing information about your developments and your assets to these other potential buyers. And so I use that as my basically interview or, or get out of jail card uh, with an, in an opportunity to meet other developers and meet exciting opportunities that initially were just wanted our deals. But I knew, hey, could I parlay myself into those and, and go towards another platform that 
clearly if they're pursuing our assets, they're growing. And that's what I needed and that's what I wanted. Up until this point now, we've, you know, I think you've you've established yourself now as a, as a really, really solid, if, if not fast paced at a career. But what's next and why is that? Well, I'm particularly interested about what it, what's driving you next. Well, at, at that point in time, uh, at the end of my four-star days, what was driving me was uh, I needed a, uh, I knew this next role for me needed to be the career role, not, not just a job, not just a, a learning opportunity, but I really needed to, uh, I was young 30s at the time and wanted to create a platform from scratch in a well-capitalized environment where we could be aggressive and do deals and, and personally that I could actually, you know, start uh, reaping the benefits of those deals. And so uh, the, the prior companies had been more salary focused, which there's, there's comfort there anytime you're getting a guaranteed salary. But the upside, if your deal, you know, loses 10% or gains 10%, your net pay is really the same. And I remember my, uh, you know, one of those companies that it was looking at some of our, our deals at Four Star and uh, that had interest in me was was Endeavor, which is where I am now. And, and they're one of the premier developers in, in Texas. And I remember the uh, guy asked me the interview, the CFO said, are you, you're an, are you an apple or an orange? And because uh, I wanted my cake and wanted to eat it too. I'd been laid off. So I obviously wanted that guaranteed salary. But I also wanted the upside and the deal uh, profitability. And he said, "You know, we don't do that here. You know, we're gonna we're gonna give you a lower salary on purpose, and that's to keep you hungry and keep you growing. And if you really do believe in yourself and believe you can create value for us, then we're gonna compensate you for that value personally as well." And I like that. It was scary um, because I'd had that comfort, you know, for eight years at Four Star, but uh, it was exciting for me to be given an opportunity to start something new at Endeavor, to start a new multifamily uh, business unit and uh, with great resources, you know, at the company, but to really be in a position to create value for myself and not for other people. Um, You're obviously doing it for other people, but, you know, you're getting a a good piece of that profit. So how does it go? How does, how, how does, how does that transition work out? And, and in particular sort of, I'm interested in what you're learning now. Yeah. Well, so you know, starting at Endeavor, we uh, it was it was scary and and uh, you know, risky. Those first uh, first year, probably we were you know, I was I was the one man shop. You're, you're kind of the you're the broker. You're finding sites. You're the designer. You're the developer. You're, you're kind of you're responsible for for every aspect of the deal. They call it a deal champion is the term we use. And and uh, at that time, I needed to prove myself to these guys. They had put a lot of risk um, and hired me to create this platform. Um, on wood frame, you know, multifamily development. So we, we had done a high rise development before, but the wood frame was new. And so I had to do well, I had to succeed uh, for these guys, I did not want to let them down. And that's something that really drives me. And, um, you know, how we are capitalized is with, it's really interesting, we're, we have the ability to go raise, you know, money from a large institutional platform, you know, out of New York. But we also majority of our capital comes from internal endeavor employees, and our principals, uh, our managing principals, so aka the founders of the company. And so w- when I'm given an opportunity to, to create a platform and go and, and do a deal, not only am I want to succeed and do a good deal, but uh, the money for that deal is also coming from the guys and my coworkers that sit right by me. And so that's really, uh, really will make you do a good deal. And I don't want to let those people down. I, I never want to, you know, I, I feel like we have one opportunity to use somebody else's money. And if you do a good job, you get another opportunity. But if you don't do a good job, you won't get that opportunity ever again. 
And so that for me, I think is a great way Endeavor's created their platform to to ensure we do sound deals, put the investors first, and and, and make sure that there is no opportunity for failure. We have to do a good deal and have to do all, analyze the risk going into each deal. And they also require us to put our money into those deals up front. And so you're, you, you rarely tie up sites that may not be fruitful if it's the first, first dollars in or your own personal dollars. So, you know, fast forward, that was that first year of kind of figuring that out and, and being, uh, being driven by fear, I'll call it, in that first year. And once we had some deals going, you get your legs under you and we're able to add some more resources. Um, it's been really exciting. We're, we're, we're now, in March will be my five-year uh, anniversary at Endeavor. We've got roughly 10 people on our team. I think I mentioned before, we're doing roughly 20 projects across the country from three-story garden-style you know, walk-up properties to you know, 35-story towers and a mixed-use uh, grocery store anchored with office, with retail. And uh, it, it's really exciting. We're, we're looking at new opportunities to, to have passive cash flow streams. And, and we're, we're growing our footprint. Um, and we're just, we're able to attract people that are really awesome what they do. And so it's a little different than me that first year where, you know, I'm having to do every, every piece of the deal to now we're able to hire people for their highest and best use. And, and, and I'm partnering opportunities now are finding more sites. He's great at leading the site acquisition side as his passion. I enjoy the uh, the design side, and so I'm able to really utilize that skill set. We really work well together, and and we're just we got an awesome team, and we're still the risk though is there every day. We're not, you know, because we are privately capitalized. You know, there's there's debt risk, there's market risk. You know, one things I've learned, you still got to pick great sites, and so you have understanding those markets of of where the good deals are. We we've done some really well developed uh, deals but they're in markets where we thought they'd really take off and, and do great, and they haven't. And so the deals have done okay you know, financially, but you know, there's other deals that you may have some misses, you may be over budget, you may be late, but they're in a market where every buyer wants to be there, and so you get bailed out. And so that's kind of the learning curve now is just, where do people want to be coming out of this procession or in this pandemic? Uh, where do the institutional capital want to be? And uh, making sure you align yourself uh, with whatever platform you're on, uh, independently, entrepreneurially, as, as a company, but making sure you're developing and delivering an asset that other people want to buy. Because you can you can build the best widget, but if nobody wants to buy it in the, the day, then all you got is a nice widget. <laughs> what about personally? Yeah, if it, myself and everyone listening back to this, yeah, will leave this impression that you you have this insatiable hunger to keep moving, to keep moving forward. Has your attitude? to that hunger has that changed over time has that mellowed oh no not at all my partner and I right now uh, you know can't share details but we're we're discussing a, a completely new platform that would be starting something else from scratch right now and and trying to do that we're still growing uh he's even more aggressive than i am i'm i'm, I'm considered the conservative uh risk-free guy a, a risky not only take those big risk guy and, and he's more of a gut let's just wing it and figure it out guy so we're a great team together doing that he'll have a great idea and I'll probably try to kill it. And, uh, you know, the psychological term is, you know, post-cognitive dissonance. And, and I want to reduce that. And that just means, you know, the fear of the outcome upon decision. If I can reduce that up front, then I've already kind of played out what could be the worst case scenario. And so when I go to do something, uh, it may perceive to be negativity, but I will look at all the risk associated with that and beat myself up, beat the decision up internally 
and if I still feel the positive outweighs what all that potential negativity could be, then I think it's a great opportunity. Let's go do it. Let's go try it. But you let's make sure all those risks are associated with it. So right now, you know, we're, we're looking at new opportunities and new risk and um, that hunger is still there to create. It's just, it's harder now because you've got you know, a lot of people now in this pandemic are focused on a couple of the same asset classes. So just, there's a lot more competition, a lot of smarter people going after the same things we are. And so how can we differentiate what we're doing and be attractive for, for other people to, to want to join us in that? Well, um, I said I was going to ask you about what next, and you sort of teased us then, haven't you, with the, uh, well, what might be next? Well, I have. Um, we'll see. I, I think we want to keep growing. We want to keep growing our platform. We want to do great deals. We want to make money for our investors. And, uh, you know, if we, if we can do a, a number of deals, that's great. But for me, I wanted to be able to deliver a great home for people that people are, are proud to live in and we're proud to develop. And, that, you know, 10, 30 years from now, you drive by that property and you say, hey, that's an Endeavor property. And we're proud to deliver that for our, for our residents and for our investors. So that's what we're excited about doing. And uh, it allows me to keep that passion for design going and allows our partners and investors to, to make money and, and provide housing uh, in markets where it's needed. And so we're, we're excited for that opportunity. Well, that gives it, I think, is a, um, a really nice way then to bring all this to a close, Nelson. So thank you very much for, for giving me the time, mate. I think you've told a really, really interesting story, once more from a different sort of geography. So, you know, I think our audience can sort of to learn a little bit more about sort of how you've built that career and the lessons you've learned. And I, and I have no doubt that's got sort of universal appeal. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I, I hope uh, this was at least one person still listening and, and uh, looking forward to following up with you next time. Oh, it's, you can't get rid of my mum. She's, she's, she's mad keen on these. All the best. Hello, Mum. Thank you, Nick. The Urban Land Institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world, with more than 45,000 global members. The ULI's ethos of personal development makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast, and we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.